Okay, so uh, good morning. Uh, thank you all for being here. Uh, my name is Josh Rosenfeld, and uh, the sheer title is uh, personal, as, uh, Suffering as a Catalyst for Personal Creativity or Spiritual Creativity. And uh, this is the second day of the YCT uh, Yeshiva Chavavei Tor Yom I'm very happy to, uh, to be here and to spend uh, uh, the next hour or so talking with you guys about suffering. Uh, say that with a smile on my face. Just a trigger warning uh, before we begin. Um, and I, I would hope that this uh, applies to really all the classes when people are discussing suffering. Um, there is a tendency to, uh, to, to allow, when we open up discussions of such things, it can, it can very much uh, take us down into, uh, into dark places. And uh, I mean that for real. And especially in this year, rather than looking at something that might be in Tanakh, and Tanakh has its fair share of suffering, uh, what I wanted to deal with were more contemporary, concrete cases, and in doing so, in speaking about such things, uh, we're talking about raw loss, uh, whether or not that's going to be loss of a loved one, whether or not that's going to be crushing poverty, or those are really going to be the only two that we're going to talk about today. When I had mentioned that there was stuff that was excised from the, on the cutting floor, um, there's a, a number of interesting contemporary writings about dealing with personal illness and uh, rabbis and teachers that were reflective of their own, uh, very aware of what they were going through. We're going to, hopefully, uh, we'll never have to talk about suffering again, but uh, <laughs> if we do speak about it some other time, there are other areas which we can discuss. What I want to talk about today are two areas of suffering, uh, personal suffering of poverty and penury and uh, loss of a loved one. So that's the trigger warning, um, because we will see very personal, uh, raw, and uh, uh, heartbreaking uh, renditions of uh, expressions of one's own personal suffering. I'll start with the story. Um, in Hasidic lore, uh, there are two rabbis that take on an almost mythical quality of their enduring of suffering and, uh, and, and doing so through fraternity. Those two brothers are Rabbi Melech of Lezhensk and Rabbi Shulam Zosh They were two brothers. Uh, Rabbi Zosh is the older one, actually outlived his brother. They're from the third generation of Hasidut. They were from the Hebraic Kedisha of Rabbi Dov Ber Magid of Mezrich, and uh, who was the Talmud of the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of Hasidut. And they, uh, they basically endured what's called like a Prabha Galus. They would wander around and they would suffer all sorts of imprecations and all sorts of degradations and suffering. And part of this was sort of a vicarious kind of atonement. That itself is a, uh, maybe a, a different shear. We'll address that. Uh, we won't get into what that means right now. The suffering of a tzaddik as expiation vicariously. That's not for right now. But uh, the story goes that they found themselves walking and, uh, in, and it's snowing outside and they realize their shoes are no good and they start to become frostbitten and they're wandering and they start to dive and they say, we are going to die here if we don't find a place for, uh, for ourselves to go and rest or at least find some sort of protection. Uh, sure enough, they happen upon an inn and they come into the inn, they're shivering cold, their feet are frostbitten, they haven't had anything to eat and uh, the innkeeper says, okay, I'll give you a, I'll give you a room. And uh, the story goes that Rav Melech is about to go to sleep, obviously exhausted from the day's ordeal. And Rav Zusha turns to his brother and says, Brother, Elimelech, what are you doing going to sleep for? And he looks at me and says, well, I mean, you can imagine. He says, well, I'm kind of you know, frostbitten and hypothermic and I'm about, I'm about to, I'm passing out here. Rav Zusha says, stand up. We have to be masters of the accounting. Now what that means, masters of the accounting, means we have to take stock of our day. 
And Rabbi Melch says, you're right. And he jumps up and he starts to go through a cheshban nefesh. He starts to give an accounting for everything that happened during that day. And he says, Zusha, I violated a hundred sins today, a hundred chataim today. And he starts to go ahead and instead of sleeping, he does tshuva. And he starts to go ahead and repent and account for every single infraction every time he infringed upon God's word. Now this is a remarkable story for a number of reasons. One of the Talmidim says later on in a recounting of this story, says what kind of a sin could you possibly be doing if you're walking in the snow and, uh, and, and on the brink of death? How could that possibly be a hundred sins? And if that's a sin, what does that mean for us? Now leaving that issue aside, what I think is remarkable about this story is that the suffering doesn't become an opportunity. And their very real suffering doesn't become an opportunity to go ahead and be mumur to murder about God's justice or to even deal with any sort of theodicy. Why is this happening to us? Which is certainly a relevant question in such a situation. After all, they were only there, they were only walking on the path in order to accomplish some sort of a theurgic mission, some sort of a mystical mission. But at the end of the day, we see that the suffering that they have serves for the tzaddikim, for these righteous individuals, not as an opportunity to open up a theodicy, but as an opportunity to open up a deeper relationship with God, to go ahead and to innovate spiritually, to go ahead and to do something that was almost here supranomian, outside the law, in that they went ahead and they said, now is our time to take personal accounting. And now what I, what I want to use that story for is because I think in this shir, or in this talk really, when I define creativity in the title, the definition that we're using is a rather broad definition of creativity. I think it could bifurcate into two things. The first is that by creativity we mean any sort of positive spiritual growth, any sort of third way from either dealing with the theodicy or ignoring it, a third way of using your suffering, of using your pain as a way to develop spiritually. That's one side. So that's creativity writ large. Creativity in a more specific sense over here would refer to a creativity of sort of, uh, one might imagine almost an artistic sort, that a rabbi or a person, a Jew that suffers, goes ahead and takes their creativity as an impetus to write more, as an impetus to deepen their expression of Torah, to open up new vistas of Torah, to learn areas that they haven't learned before, which we shall see examples of both of these as well. So that's spiritual creativity. Now, this... um, this happens, um, this happens to ordinary people as well. So everybody suffers. And, uh, in, in, and people suffer differently. And people experience their suffering differently. But I think it's fair to say that almost everybody suffers just by dint of being in this world. Hopefully our suffering is not an acute, visceral type of suffering. But in any sense, a person, a Jew especially, is supposed to feel the pain of the world when they function. And to daven and be mekonein on that. Now, what we're going to be talking about today is the suffering of tzaddikim, specifically. And tzaddikim, I think over here, the definition that I want to use, when we talk about spiritual masters, I think one of the usages of the word tzaddik here is to be matzdik. To be matzdik means to justify or to show that something is correct and fitting and right. Now, what do I mean? We find this throughout Tanakh. We find, for example, King Yoshiyahu, the Midrashim tell us, but it's mentioned in, in Megillus, Eichat tzaddiku Hashem kipilu merisi. Uh, God is righteous because I violated his words. Now, of course, Melech Yoshiao, when he was shot through by the arrows of Paro Necho, he really had made a miscalculation. He was by no means a sinner. He was a great religious leader of the Jewish people. And yet, during the time that he was dying, which could have very easily been said to be unjust, 
he goes ahead and he's matzik kashbach. We find in Nehemiah, Nehemiah says, uh, God is correct in everything that he does to us because we're the ones that have sinned. To be matzik, we find, for example, David Amelech says, And David Amelech, of course, we know, did endure suffering, lost child. Avshalom, and he lost the baby as well. David HaMelech says that God is righteous in his ways, that God is righteous in all his ways, that tzaddikim take their own suffering and use it as a way to go ahead and be matzik, to justify to other people. Almost one might say, and I can't speak for a tzaddik because I'm not one, but almost as if to say, by understanding on a personal level what suffering means, by understanding on a personal level what loss and tragedy means, we're able to go ahead and we're able to express to the world a different way of dealing with it. We could justify it to ourselves, and if we could do it, people can use us as a spiritual linchpin, something to hold on to when they go through their own suffering. So I think that that would be the instructive message over here. We'll get into it. Hi. Um, going forward, do we need to have a safe definition of what tzaddik is, or are we operating on the principle that whoever speaks is tzaddik? So, so I would say, in, in a larger sense, in the broadest possible sense, I would say one of the hallmarks of a tzaddik is what you just described, is this ability to take one's suffering and to be matzik, or to look at the world and be matzik God's suffering. Now, uh, of course, the greatest possible example of this are, uh, there's an approach in Holocaust theology, which basically says that uh, we're not going to deal with the issue of the, uh, of the paroxysm of suffering that the Holocaust represents. Rather, we're going to forge ahead and continue and we're going to not, 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 not to justify God, but to justify our own continued existence. I would say probably one of the, one of the greatest examples of this ever, and we could have included this in the year as well as the Kleisenberger Rebbe. Kleisenberger Rebbe lost 10 children, and instead of, uh, instead of staying in any sort of, uh, of hole, he immediately converted that into action. He immediately, already in the DP camps, he was building up Torah Mostos. He used his opportunity to speak to General Eisenhower and to talk about the need for talasim and spiritual objects to give succor to the Jews that were in the DP camps. We do see examples of this, but I also refer specifically to agreed upon, I, I think the figures that we'll see today, the three of them that we'll see today, I think everybody would agree that these figures fall firmly in the realm of great Torah personalities, people that, people that learned and wrote and taught a lot of Torah, people that conducted themselves with the highest uh, level of righteousness and spiritual exactitude with mitzvot, and also tzaddik in the sense of that they took their suffering and they used this as a creative foundation. One, two. Yeah. Right, so uh, also talk about definitions. So when you say matzik, uh, you mean to, to blame oneself or to say have judges correct? What, what do you mean by matzik? So, so matzik in the, very good. Matzik in the most simple possible sense, just literally translate means to, ju- to, to, to justify it, to, to, to almost uh, to say this is this makes sense. There's a reason. There's a reason for this. It might, not, it might be inscrutable. It might not be able to understand. But I can, it, it, it implies an acceptance. It implies an ultimate acceptance without any reservations. That's what I think it means over here. But we'll see how, how they engage that acceptance in, in individual creative ways. Hi. Uh, um, the question that I have is, it's the individual person who was called the Satikim. But how about the ancillary victims of their suffering, the you know their family, and, and and stuff like that? That is, in essence, the family is being punished for whatever it is that these people are being conceived of as sinners. 
or for whatever it is that they justify. So they may be able to justify it to themselves, but can they really justify their family suffering as well? So I, I don't mean to evade the question. I think it's a large question. Look, in all the shirim, I think people have been talking about theodicies. What I mean by theodicy is dealing with the problem of evil, right? If God is, if God is all good, that if God is, if God is the, if God is the essence of goodness, now how could how could such terrible things happen, especially while preserving the innocence of the one suffering? Uh, I don't mean to evade it. It's it is a broader question. I think that maybe uh, a way to look at this is that uh, is that part of the creative response to suffering doesn't involve getting into the questions of thinking about whether or not that this is because of sin. You might think that we would take attack in this year and say, well, you know, they, the, the reason they're able to use this as a creative foundation, as a, as a, as a place to, to create positively in the wake of that suffering, well, that's because they accept the fact that they're the ones, that they're the ones who deserve it. Actually, I don't see that in any of the cases over here. You just started out with the story that says that it's discussed you know, a hundred, you know, of errors that they did. But the point of that is that it's so ridiculous. There's no way that he could have done. Right. He's saying, this is how, this is how I'm, I'm working on it for myself. The, the, I would say the impulse to even think about one's averos, the impulse to think about one's sins, is itself a demonstration, shalom. It's itself a demonstration of their, uh, of their understanding of their spiritual predicament. Last question, then I want to be able I to move maybe, on. I'm sure it's more like a question geared towards the end, but I guess I'm already, um, I'm, I'm a social worker, I'm already like, cynical as to how is this even relatable to the normal um, average if there is such a thing human being I mean this is so this is tzaddikim but is it even relatable so that is that is a that is an excellent question I don't know if I'm going to give you a good answer I will I will say like this um, another another aspect of the tzaddikim saw themselves as as individuals, the personal experience of tzaddikim are individuals that are, are almost holding together heaven and earth, especially when heaven and earth seem to be drifting further and further apart, when there becomes uh, continuous occlusions of God's presence. I think that it's, uh, and again, we are understandably, as Jews, we're understandably hesitant around concepts of vicarious atonement, of uh, using other people as sort of spiritual, um, as, as spiritual bases for ourselves. But I do think that it is okay to look at these examples and say, even if we couldn't necessarily muster the spiritual courage to do so, to appreciate that there are individuals who have spent their whole lives deeply engaged with her, I think that that itself is instructive. And also what I hope to do at the end, after we go through these examples, is to say exactly what we might do. If Soloveitchik has in a lecture, in an essay that he wrote down in 1978, uh, amazing words, I think, for, for, for us. I would say for myself. I, I, there might be tzaddikim here. For the middling individuals who, who don't find themselves on that spiritual level and might find themselves buried under their suffering and unable to do anything, paralyzed by it almost, uh, I believe that I believe that the tzaddik can do uh, blaze a trail, blaze a path for us with which to think about it ourselves. Absolutely. Yeah, hi. Okay. One normative, like one right from all Jews' uh, idea that came, comes to mind, I don't know if we'll get, we'll get to it, but is that in the Pirkei the, Avos the, where they say there's 48 ways to, to uh, require Torah. Correct. And uh, this could be inspirational. And I say actually acceptance of suffering, Kalal Sisorim, is one of the 48 ways of, of course, requiring Torah. Of course, that comes after telling us that Zuhi Darkusha Torah, peace of Amelach Tochal, the way of Torah, as we're going to see in a moment, the way of Torah is almost uh, requires a degree of privation. 
requires a degree of limiting one's personal enjoyment and comfortability in the world. The Torah and, and engagement with the divine is supposed to make us uncomfortable. It's not, it's not meant to be something that is a, uh, uh, a physically pleasurable experience. It's tanuk nafshi, it's something else. But that's a very good point. The first uh, source that I want to start out with, really as, a, as an introduction, is the source right on the top. You could see that uh, Hebrew text, the only one that I've left untranslated. This comes, this is actually a printout from, uh, from the Parish Hasulam on the Zohar HaKadosh, the Bala Sulem was Yehuda Lev Ashlag. He was a uh, Catholic who came from Germany uh, to the land of Israel. He actually uh, became uh, sort of his students later on. The student's students uh, are responsible for the Kabbalah Center and all these things. But he wrote a massive parish, a massive commentary and translation of the Zohar called the Zulam, the Sulam. He also wrote a sefer on the Kabbalah of the Arizal called Talmud Esra Spiros. He writes the following thing, and this is the model that we're going to work with. Amr of Yehuda. Any time that an individual, there's a translation in Hebrew in the bottom, any time that an individual falls is no philomishkav, meaning a sickness, an illness, a suffering of sorts. Lo and they find themselves unable to pray. They feel themselves because of their suffering and because of the fact that the suffering prevents them from serving God as properly. So they feel their soul dissipating and departing from them. They feel themselves, it's the paradox. I'm suffering and the suffering is pushing me away from God. Of course, the Gemara in Shabbos, Tav Zayin Amad Aleph tells us that there are two different kinds of suffering. There's suffering that goes ahead, Yisurin Shal Ava, sufferings of love, and sufferings that can't be attributed to love. The Gemara says that a suffering that can't be attributed to divine love in an immediate sense is one that prevents us from serving God. And that the more we suffer, the more we find ourselves pushed away from God. And he says, And the person's soul doesn't light them up. They don't feel a connection. They don't feel any sort of spirituality because they're undergoing dinim. They're undergoing a system of judgment. They find themselves standing before the God on the docket. And then a person finds themselves being mutzak in din. They find themselves able to justify, or they find themselves able to come out exonerated somehow in their own eyes. So then the spiritual gesture afterwards is to illuminate the world. Their neshama can now go ahead and illuminate the world. And what I think is going on over here, I saw an essay by Robert Gibbs, uh, as a theologian, he wrote a commentary on uh, some lines in Eov, and he said that what this means is that, in, in a sense, Sadiq can only be a person that suffers. We could look to religious individuals, and we could say that person is a great spiritual individual, but they don't undergo suffering. If they don't undergo loss, if they don't have this almost universal experience of suffering, then how much can we really look up to them? How much can we really take them at face value when they tell us things about God and the Torah if they haven't suffered like us? If I'm somebody that's going through an illness, if I'm somebody, and all this is couched in lolling, right? God forbid. If I'm somebody that's going through an illness, right? If I have a child that's suffering, God forbid. If I have this kind of a situation and the rabbi comes or a spiritual teacher comes and tells me, oh, you know, it's all going to work out for the good and it could have been so much worse, whatever pat answer we're used to receiving for stuff like that. If that person who's, who's giving that encouragement or giving that framing for our suffering, Musr, well, hopefully not, that would be harsh, but if that person, chizik, encouragement, if that person has undergone their own experience of suffering, all of a sudden it becomes a very different kind of conversation. It becomes something quite different because we understand that it's coming from a place of, of empathy. It's coming from a place of, 
uh, it's coming from a place of, of shared of shared sorrow, of shared suffering. And we find this in the divine model as well. In Kabbalah, there's a concept of shchint begalusa. We see this in Chazal as well, that God exiled himself in order to kiviachol, as if to say, experience the suffering of the Jewish people. In fact, one of the major Holocaust theologies seems to say, I believe this is Fackenheim, that part of the understanding of the Holocaust is that God himself was suffering at the same time as well. That that was the, I apologize for the pronouns, I'm just using it for expediency, God itself. The God, God is Imanochi is, Betzara. Is, is God is experiencing the suffering as well and almost somehow takes the edge off of how this could possibly be happening. Yeah. I mean, that's so obvious, I can't think. I mean, that is so Christian. God suffers too. But uh, we, 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 we are told. I, 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 look, I don't mean to, uh, this isn't going to necessarily be a place that we're going to, the, the, the notion of vicarious atonement, which does form, I'm no scholar in Christianity, which does seem to form the underpinning of a lot of Christian theology. Um, I just, I read something really amazing about it. I forgot which Navi it was, but God, I think it's Navi Yecheskel. And this maybe will put an end to, the, to our uncomfortability with this for the time being or not. Uh, the Navi Cheskel, I believe, is told by a Kaddish Baruch Hu to give a dogma, an example, uh, to act out the suffering that will happen to Yehuda and Yisrael. And, in one, and God says to him, if I remember correctly, forgive me if I'm wrong, God says, you know, lie down on your side, and that will symbolize oh, yeah. the suffering of Yehuda. Then lie down on your other side, that will symbolize the suffering of Israel. Now that's, that's a, an interesting, because what, what's really fascinating about this, you would ask, a Christian theology, and you would say, who's the only individual that can atone for all of Judah and Israel? And it's sort of supposed to be an eschatological thing to atone for Judah and Israel. Well, that will be Jesus. Except we find, and then you would say, well, is it only Jesus? Because we kind of see in Tanakh that we have another individual, a prophet. So it's, it, it's got to be Jesus and Yechezkel, or maybe just Yeche- like, because we see somebody else that seems to be enacting the suffering. Hey, look at Hosea. Okay, so so we right the, the so the harlot as well, but we see we see somebody else that that does this. We do see I I, 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 I maybe this shear would require a much longer introduction to say that we and, and I don't mean to get into the issue of uh, of vicarity here. I guess that's a word, uh, but but uh, yeah, that's but but that's I don't I don't necessarily think that the idea is so alien. No, it's to not. They got it from us. Uh, yeah. I was just going to say. I mean, even more so, like in terms of the. Um, the type of suffering, so like if a person with mental illness or a person mm-hmm. with addiction issues or what have you, if they can be helped by someone who's had that, that same type of suffering, that's even more valuable. 100%. 100%. Uh, one of the, I'll just say, uh, just to put this parenthetically, one of the greatest resources, I, I, I work as a, as a special rabbi in the city. One of the greatest resources that we have is that we actually... Um, I told I, we offered all the trigger warnings. People that uh, experience loss of a pregnancy. I mean, it's uh, what loss of pregnancy. I mean, really, one of uh, one of the hardest. Uh, it's it's almost impossible to imagine. Like all other things, it's impossible to imagine the suffering of a couple, especially a couple that's trying. Uh, there are resources out there uh, where you could actually connect people with other people. There's uh, somebody I was I was talking and uh, came up very recently, uh, and and I spoke to somebody and and there's a circle that you could send the father, and there's one for fathers, there's one for mothers, there's one for parents together. And it's almost, uh, it's, not, it's not like me saying as a rabbi, I, I can't deal with this, but saying these people can help you so much better and all I'm being is a shadchan here. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's so much more powerful than me being, well, you know, so uh, no matter how much empathy I can muster, I can't do that. Anyway, that having been said, maybe we're going to, um, 
we'll do the, the first part outside because I really do want to get into the meat of things here. Uh, another model that we see for suffering being something that yields creativity is the concept of chavlei mashiach. The, uh, the, we have, uh, we liken the eschaton to a woman in her birth pigs. We actually will sing this uh, on, uh, on Tisha B'Av, on the only ones who sing, like a woman in the pangs of childbirth. The childbirth is this model of something that is a tremendous amount of pain, uh, physical pain and suffering. Actually, in, um, in this book uh, that I was reading in preparation, Suffering Religion, edited by Robert Gibbs and Elliot Wolfson, which is Theological Approaches to Suffering, there's an article really fascinating by a Christian theologian where she interviews women from different Christian uh, denominations and how they spiritualize the pain of childbirth. People that went ahead and said, I don't want any anesthetic because I want to feel the pain of childbirth because that's part of the aspect of bringing life into the world is the pain and suffering that goes through it. Really fascinating stuff. And somebody told me afterwards that there are indeed uh, Kala teachers or out there that say that in order to feel the pain of Chava, right, to, to, to realize the curse, and God, now, I don't know how extreme this is or how prevalent, but this is what I heard, that, uh, that, it's, uh, that it's up to a, a righteous woman denies uh, denies herself the opportunity to avail herself of an epidural. That's, uh, so that seems to be it. So we have, uh, the Malbim says that the model over here is that we talk about our age, the age before the Messiah, as the ikvitad Meshicha, that this is Chevle Mashiach, that all the confusions and the sufferings of the 19th and 20th century, and now the 21st century, so it's getting long a little bit, but with the world wars and the confusion that we find globally, the planet destroying itself, we find that as being a representation of Chevle Mashiach and, and the understanding that the Malbim says is just as you have this screaming out in pain and this desire almost to, to die rather than experience this pain, what, ho- what happens afterwards hopefully is a revelation of divine light, is a revelation of, a revelation of, of creation, of new life, of something positive developing out of that. And that's what I think is we're going to see with these individuals is that they take whatever their personal predicament is and they see their pains now, they see their suffering, they see it as birth pains. They see it as an opportunity to develop and to create something new. So that's, uh, that will be, you can look inside the first, three, uh, the first three sources, but I want to do source number four because I think that this is, a, 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 you know, I think it's another example of, um, of humor in the Talmud. But the Talmud, Mesechet Sanhedrin, uh, says, Amr Ula. says, let the Messiah come, but after my death, so that I will not see him. Right? I hope that there's a Messiah, I hope that there's a final redemption, but let it come after I pass away. I don't want to experience these Khevle Mashiach. Let it come and let me not see it after my death. However, Rav Yosef says, Amr de He said, actually, let Mashiach come. I want to experience those pains, I want to experience that suffering, and I want to be privileged to sit in the excrement of the Messiah's donkey. What I think that that represents is an approach of a tzaddik to say that the way to experience the fullness, the way to experience the, 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 the true, the vastness of the redemptive experience is to participate in the suffering that precedes it, is to take on a full role in experiencing the chavalim, the pangs of that birth that happens afterwards. The first case that we're going to use is the case of poverty. Now, the Gemara is filled. We even mentioned the way uh, acquisition of Torah, one of the explicit ways in which the Torah is described to be acquired in Parakimian Torah, of course, is indeed penury and privation. 
that that means that a person should not be uh, engaged in material pursuits or even searching out for material things engaged in the rat race because that would be a denial of their work in Torah. That would be a denial of their full, uh, their, their, their headlong throwing themselves into the world of Torah and in service of God. They would have to desist and move away from the ordinary ways of life in which we go ahead, acquire money and possessions and objects like that. So the case I want to use over here is uh, we talked about who's considered a tzaddik and almost unimpeached uh, tzaddik and Talmudist Rabbi Ari Leiva Cohen Heller uh, lived in Galicia 1745 to 1812. Talmudist and is an author of the Ktsosa Choshen, Avni Miluim, and Shev Shmata, the last one being a book that he wrote for his Sheva Brachot, these le- uh, lectures that he gave uh, for his wedding celebrations. The Balak Ktsos is, uh, is a book that I think has merited to special. Uh, ap- uh, approbation in the yeshiva world. It's almost impossible to learn Mesechtaot uh, uh, in Seder Nizik in Bavakama, Bava Metzia, Bava Basu, to learn them without a ktsos, as it's called colloquially. And uh, he is, uh, he is a, a rabbi of almost unimpeachable, um, unimpeachable righteousness. We start off with the Gemara Nedarim. The Gemara says, he's Arub Aniim. Be careful with regard to the sons of the paupers, the sons of the impoverished, semihen teitzei Torah, that from them, from the impoverished people, uh, shall come, or from their children shall come Torah. Shenemar yazomayim midalyov, shemehen teitzei Torah. Water shall flow from their, midalyov, shall flow from their branches, which is expounded to mean from the dalim, dalim v'rashim, from the poor and the destitute, from them shall come forth the mayim of Torah. That in that, in that situation where a person is suffering through penury, through poverty, that a person can use that as a mafnet, could use that as something that turns them towards a deepened and heightened experience of God and experience of Torah. What does the, what does the author of the Ketos say about himself? So this comes from the introduction to Shev Shmatata, number seven. He says, source number six, Shekol Misha'ohev Osher V'ta'anog Eino Yachal Torah Anybody that loves wealth or, in, or, or loves physical pleasure, is, not, is unable to learn Torah Shabbat Peh. They cannot learn the, uh, the Torah, the oral Torah. Now, I don't want to necessarily, we could spend time explaining why specifically Torah Shabbat Peh over here. Torah Shabbat Peh, of course, the Gemara tells us, is specifically the providence of the Jewish people province of the Jewish people, whereas the Torah Shebechtav is the province of the entire world as well. Uh, in fact, teaching Torah, for example, Torah Shebechtav to a non-Jewish person is considered a violation, infraction. It's a whole separate uh, question that we could deal with. But he says Torah Shebechtav is only acquired through somebody that does not love wealth and does not love pleasure. He says that learning Torah Shebechtav means, by definition, loss of sleep and we all know how painful it is to not have sleep, especially if there's no coffee in the morning, yeah. to not have sleep, and to also experience tsar gadol, great pain. Do you the, see, sorry, yeah. do you see this at all being in conflict with a kemach and Torah, like you're oh. not able to concentrate? And the kemach is coming from other people, meaning the, I, I, that, at least in colloquial, contemporary usage, in kemach in Torah is how I hit you up for funds. Right? I would say, in kemach in Torah, please support the yeshiva. But in kemach in Torah means, we're talking about subsistence here. In kemach in Torah doesn't mean, well, let me give you enough kemach so that you could drive a Maserati to the no, base no, medrash. If, That's, uh, if it's really at the level of poverty, if they're not, if they're not getting adequate nutrition, how are they going to concentrate yeah, on exactly. Torah? So, let, so maybe I'll backtrack. I don't, I don't think that he's saying you have to be impoverished, but he's saying, if you, if you love wealth, 
Although we will see that the author of these words himself was deeply, deeply impoverished. As he's writing, this, this is a person that suffered from extreme poverty. Hi. Just, hi. Your suggestion is that maybe Dr. Torsh is so much about receptivity. is about receptivity, meaning having a, a, a Rebbe or having... Receiving it, receiving it from someone else, and also giving and taking. It requires it to be done properly. It requires a degree of humility and uh, self, like, you know, like why we pass one face Hillel, etc. Right. As well as the pure receptivity of Torsh I mean, I hear that very well, although I would say that that model holds true for really all of Torah. Moshe Rabbeinu, uh, I saw very recently, um, after, uh, I forgot who was talking about the Lush and Hara that was said about Moshe, uh, but it said that, uh, that it's amazing that the response of God to talking about Moshe's uh, special righteousness is the fact that he's Anav Mikol Adam. That Anav Mikol Adam is not just happens to be an ancillary personal quality of Moshe Rabbeinu uh, that's like a really nice thing and look at it. No, but that's actually the reason he was receiving the Torah. The reason he receives the Torah is because he's Anav So that receptivity, while, while it does strike too in the way the Torah is taught and uh, it's actually described in Prakeva, Kibel Torah. Uh, I, I, it's also nice for Yizamayim Yidol Yoh. It's one of the reasons why Torah goes to Kibel like Right, right. That's one of the true, right. Obviously, the, the main metaphor of Torah, and one of the beautiful ways uh, of, in which Torah is likened to water is that, is that just as water sinks to the lowest possible place right. uh, over time, Torah also. And it's humility. Exactly. And Torah, and Torah is able to go ahead and bring life to that. Uh, so he's not necessarily talking about uh, that you need to be impoverished as a prerequisite, but it's certainly you need to be somebody that money or gathering up or amassing wealth is. Is, uh, is, is an irrelevancy. Let's just finish the source okay. one second and I'll take the next question. And in order to learn Torah, you have to be mechaleh, you have to deplete your body, you have to deplete yourself. And minavel, you have to be somebody, you can't be involved in, in, uh, in beautifying yourself and you can't be involved in, you know, if you want to learn Torah, you can't spend 20 minutes in front of the mirror every morning if you have to rush out. This is something it's going to make you, it's going to deplete you and deplete your appearance. It's going to make you a little bit minuval. It's like a language that we used to talk about, like a sota, ripped garments and, 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 and crusty and a little bit grungy. This is Torah because Torah means a full engagement with such things. L'fikach matan gadol. That is why the reward, the recompense for learning Torah is great. Lefikach, ah, so that's the end of this source that I quote over here. Hi, you had a question. Yeah, it's, you know, I think you could just as well say that great, uh, great pain and sleeplessness depletes and decays the body as well. Yeah, he's uh, absolutely, he's no, saying no, no, that. No, what I'm saying is that is a bad way to acquire Torah because, you know, you know for example, they try and set limits on how many how much how many hours interns can work mm-hmm. you know because they you know because they've had too many disasters huh they've had too many disasters right it's it's disastrous because you can't really focus properly if you're experiencing significant pain it is exceedingly mm-hmm. hard to focus on torah well look i mean the, the, it's i don't it's I, we're saying it here as a prerequisite but it also seems to be it also seems to be an effect of torah Right, we're just, the Gemara tells us that Torah is mateshes kochoshul adam. That the learning of Torah is something that almost immediately depletes and saps one's physical energy. We see this in the story of Reish Lakish and Rav Yochanan Baba Mitzia, that when 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 Reish Lakish jumps into the water and accepts upon himself the old the yoke of Torah, immediately finds himself unable to emerge from the river. So it is something that it's how much this is 
a way of Torah nowadays, which is a classic rabbinic trope. How much do we apply this nowadays is up for, uh, is up for debate. Uh, I will just say that a letter came out from, uh, from Machon Kitver of Shagar. Uh, they sent it out before Shavuos, and Rav Shagar, a great educator uh, in the land of Israel, uh, his books are starting to be translated to English. It was the last thing I spoke about at the other YCOM last year. Uh, Rav Shagar uh, writes a letter and he talks about using the Rambam as an example. He says, we do have these models of privation and, and almost a, an ascetic ideal to try and acquire Torah. Rav Shagar says, but it's important nowadays, you need to eat, you need to be healthy. You can't sit at a seder thinking about what the Aruchat Sarayim is going to be because you won't learn it all. We, we don't, the, the fortitude... Maybe this was easier in a world where you didn't have 30 different varieties of cereal in the supermarket, but when you ate potatoes and you ate onions for every meal and you ate uh, buckwheat for every meal because you were penniless anyway, maybe that model was much more uh, fitting. Nowadays, uh, where, where, you know, we have a lot more, or we, 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 have, we have a lot more physical um, things to take from, and we're in a much better uh, physical and monetary position, maybe it's a little bit different. Okay, so, so... Isn't there a difference between this model and the first two you suggested? Because it seems like the first two, man has no choice. Things are just happening to him. Here, in terms of someone's financial status, he has a say. There's Ishtabut involved. So, so, so it's absolutely correct. Right, I... I, I well... I don't know. To a certain extent. Right, to a certain extent. I don't know how easy it is to say. You know, many people, uh, their, their penury is not for a lack of trying otherwise. And, uh, and there were many examples of rabbis. This is just one. I won't say this is the only way, but, but I will say that we do find many rabbis, for example, Rabbi Yehuda Nasi is said to have been Zoha Lishnei Shulchanos. That he was, uh, he had tremendous temporal wealth and he had spiritual wealth as well. So this isn't the only model, but this, but this does seem to be uh, uh, almost like a, a shortcut that a person seems to say, I want to have nothing to do with that, and they oscillate themselves completely towards the spiritual. You're right that there is a little bit more volition implied over here. A person can take control of their financial situation, but I think for the Jews of, uh, I think for the Jews of the 18th and 19th, uh, you know, early 19th and late 18th century uh, Europe, for many of them, this was the default experience, probably. I would say, and you know, they weren't allowed to loan, own land for many centuries. They weren't allowed to engage in many professions. Penury and poverty was really the lot of the Jews. That seemed, except for the rare exceptions. So you're right that it is slightly different. It's and more of a defense mechanism than an ideal. I, I have to think about that. I don't know if I can endorse. Uh, I don't know if I can endorse that fully. But but you are right that it's that it is a different kind of stuff, which is why I want to contrast this with another type afterwards. So he continues in the next one. So that's nice in saying that, well, that doesn't really, he says that suffering is a prerequisite for really learning. But then he writes at the end of the introduction. He says, Vanit filah. And he finishes off with a prayer. God should hasten his actions and he should redeem us. He shouldn't continue to cause us to suffer. Even though we know, and he's speaking for himself really, even though we know that everything that's happened to us is, is righteous and there's, and there's a reason and it's being done through mercy. Paradoxically, right? just as God uh, just as a, a, a parent would go ahead and admonish their child, so to God is somehow admonishing us. We do see over here sort of recognition there must be a kind of a reason, even though the Balaksos really couldn't say that reason is a person that learned all day. And he, he continues and he says, May Hashem further bring in our exiles. He ends off with the prayer. 
How do we know how impoverished the Ktos was? Because we look at source number eight. The Ktos tells us, he writes in a poem to the beginning of Ktos, the Ktos is three volumes. In the beginning of the second volume, he writes a poem and he says, So he says, God, the Shochein Sneh, the one who dwells within the bush, has come and given me help, to give my first offerings, or I've given out which is again a commentary and an explication of Shulchan Aruch, the section of Shulchan Aruch, dealing with finance, with torts and damages and financial law, Choshen Mishpat. And he says, We've founded it on this section of Shulchan Aruch, and now we've created and made it. I have decided now to release a second edition of the Ksos HaChoshen. However, there's a problem. Last line, Because of the fact that the, the, the uh, expenses... The expenses for publishing are great. Because the expenses of publishing are great, listen to this, he says, He's writing one of the greatest pirushim, one of the greatest commentaries on Choshen Mishpat ever, and he writes in the poem, in a poem, poetic form in the introduction, he says, because we can't afford it, we've left out the Shulchan Aruch from over here. We can't print it with the Shulchan Aruch. We don't have enough money for the ink to print the Shulchan Aruch. Another description that's in the introduction to this Machon Yerushalayim edition of the Ketos HaKoshen, another description comes from the founder of the Kamarno Hasidic dynasty. Uh, Kamarno Hasidic dynasty was, uh, was founded really by Rabbi Yitzchak Isaac Safrin. So he's called the Yitzchak Safriner. He had, uh, he had a number of sons. He had a son of Alexander Sender Safrin of Kamarno. And he had a son, Rav Yitzchak, Yehuda, Rav Yitzchak Isaac Yehudi Yechiel Halevi of Kamarna. He was the great Kamarna Rebbe, the author of works like the Heichal Bracha and Otzer Chaim and the Siv Mitzvah He says, he writes, that he, res- he responds that his grandfather was enamored of the Balak Ktsos. His grandfather was, uh, was, was, you know, the Ktsos was already known in the city of Sitri as being a great Talmudic scholar and people would travel to him from all over. The Ktsos was also a Misnagit. He was somebody that was opposed to Hasidim. And he says that his father would come and he describes his father arriving at the Ketzos' house. And listen to this. And I guess the only reason it doesn't, it doesn't make me choke up is because I've said this a number of times already. He says that he arrives at the Ketzos' house on one of his visits and it's the winter and the Ketzos' family is nowhere to be found. And the Ketzos' family has been sent off and he asks and finds the Ketzos in, in, in an inner room covered in blankets and within the blankets is his inkwell, and he's taking out the inkwell from underneath the blankets because he doesn't want the ink to freeze. That was the status in which you find the ktsos. And if that's the penury with which the ktsos was writing, if that's the poverty and suffering that the ktsos was engaged in, I think that's how you possibly get, and still continuing to write at the same time. And this is the situation from which one of the greatest works of Talmudic and halachic scholarship emerges from. That's how you get a lasting edifice, I think, almost. That's how there's almost a divine... Uh, 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 divine assistance that this book becomes a book for the ages. So much for the Ketzos right now and so much for penury but we see that the Ketzos uses his suffering and says this is how my Torah is developing. This is how my Torah is coming out. It's through the fact that I do care. I could care less about amassing wealth. I could care. I understand. I intuit that the writing of my works is going to take place in a, in a state of extreme pennilessness and extreme poverty.
Okay, that is what we say that one of the drachim of Kenyan Torah, he takes his poverty and he uses it as a justification for more and more Torah, as if he needs a justification, but as an impetus and to say, this is the framing of my writing and my Torah vocation. Let's move on to the loss of loved ones. And again, our trigger warning uh, applies and I see we're already, is it really? That's crazy that we've, okay, I apologize. The questions. The second case comes from Rabbi Akiva Eger. Rabbi Akiva Eger, uh, uh, I'll, I'll point out that in a letter of the Chazanish, the Chazanish writes that there are certain rabbis that it's impossible to learn Talmud without them. Uh, I believe it's the first letter in the second section of the Igros of the, of the Chazanish, the great leader of Lithuanian Jewry in the land of Israel. Chazanish says to learn Gemara without the Gilayan Ashas, without the, the glasses, the marginal glasses of Rabbi Akiva Eger, is almost to not learn Gemara. He includes the Marsha in there as well, and the Marshal, the Yamshel Shlomo. The, uh, Rabbi Akiva Eger is one of the greatest Talmudists of all time. And uh, he has these, uh, his most famous works come out posthumously, Shailot and Shuvot Rabbi Akiva Eger, which Rav Shechter used to say, are not really Shailot and Shuvot because nobody was asking these questions. But he went ahead and he wrote learned Talmudic essays, and, and he's renowned for his, uh, for his rabbinate in the city of Posen, which was one of the great, uh, which was one of the great um, Jewish uh, uh, cities of, of scholars. We have, uh, we have uh, connections to the city of Lisa nearby and the Balanesivos, which was also somebody that commented, just I guess connecting to the first source, somebody that, that wrote the Nesivos HaMishpat in response to the Ksos HaChoshen. Rabbi Akiva Eger, it's almost impossible to overstate his importance for Jewish history and for uh, Talmudism in general. Uh, the Gemara in Sanhedrin says, in the interest of time, we'll just read in the English. Rabbi Yochanan says, For any man whose first wife dies, it is as if the temple were destroyed in his days. As is sated, son of man, behold, I take away from you the desire of your eyes, machmat with a stroke, yet neither shall you make lamentation nor weep, neither shall your tears run down. Again, uh, uh, almost a, an encouragement of a non-response as a response. Don't focus on the suffering. Don't focus on the tremendous loss that you've experienced. But catalyze it. Turn it into something. We find in the letters of Rabbi Akiva Eger, dated Wednesday, 16 March, 1796. Rabbi Akiva Eger was married to his first wife, Glickel, uh, who was the daughter of a great Nagid, a great uh, wealthy individual who provided Rabbi Akiva Eger, his father-in-law provided him with a home, he established a yeshiva, and he was able to go ahead and really get his footing as a Talmud Chacham, and he was provided for by his wife's family. They had three children, three sons, and Rabbi Akiva, and after bringing their last son, after bringing, excuse me, their first son to the chuppah, two months later, his wife dies. His wife passes away. We have a letter from Riki Vegar, and what's amazing about this is because Riki Vegar is synonymous with Talmudic casuistry, with almost you would think that there's no, I, I, I hesitate to allow these words to come out of my mouth, that there's almost no soul here, that there's almost, it's, it's pure scholarship, pure Talmudic genius. And yet, when you look in the letters, you find such a deep, profound expression of humanity. And, uh, and I would say that, that to, offer, um, to offer a relief, not, not like, a, like that we can relax, but to offer uh, an opposite perspective. Uh, I was told in yeshiva a very troubling story. The story goes that, uh, and I don't know exactly if it's apocryphal, but this is what was, uh, the story told us. Rabbi uh, Chaim Brisker uh, of uh, Soloveitchik's grandfather, when he lost a daughter, I don't, maybe it was him or the Grizz, his father, when he lost a daughter, so the, the report was is that he received the news and immediately went to go ahead and to take off the chilek of Shulchan Aruch that deals with the halachot of Hilchot Avelut in Seder Yerotei. That's, that's how he engaged his suffering. 
And that's supposed to be, the way that this rabbi that was telling it to me was that was supposed to be something to emulate, that was supposed to be something to see as greatness. And instead, I remember my reaction to this being, okay, that's very, that is an expression of the halachic man, perhaps, but that is also seems inhumane. That almost seems, it seems, besides being impossible, it seems almost um, cruel. Uh, now, I'm not, obviously, I'm not speaking, I can't judge, but I'm saying for myself, my experience of it. So to find reactions like this from no less a Talmudist than, uh, than Rabbi Akiva Eger is, is, is unbelievable. We're going to read in the English. Uh, the translation is mine. Um, so any mistakes, I take full. Well, I don't take any responsibility. That's, uh, it's, it's yeah. the same thing with Aaron, which I found always to be... The Vayidom Aaron. Vayidom Aaron. Correct. You know, he's, he's, he's supposed, you know, that's a superhuman reaction. What do you know? Correct, and, and also that he's that that even though he's prevented from bringing one of the carbonos, Aaron is, is is basically told throw toss yourself into into your work. Right, we have a mishkan that just was uh, was erected. We just had a Hanukkah the mishkan. Right, it's time to get involved. You're right. I I, I specifically did not, even though there are many examples in uh, in Tanakh. Uh, we could focus on Davin Melech, we could focus on, uh, on the other cases of Nehemiah uh, and in Eicha that we mentioned before. Uh, I specifically want to bring more, slightly more contemporary examples. That is one, a good one. Rabbi Akiva Eker writes, uh, basically the letter is in response to two friends, two friends that see him after his loss and want to suggest a shidduch for Rabbi Akiva Eger, Zivuk Shani. So I, I, do, I, I can't really tell. The letter is dated uh, Wednesday, 16 March, 1796. Uh, it's roughly the same year that his wife passes, his first wife passes away. I don't know exactly what the proximity is. I would have to find out the exact date of his wife's passing. He says, I was unable, listen to these words, it's amazing. I was unable to respond immediately, especially now because of my great sins and because my mind is not clear. My hands unable to write quickly as is my wont, and now that I am responding, I don't know what to say. My thoughts are confused, my heart is closed up, and my strength sapped from responding to anything. I am simply here pouring out myself in bitterness of heart, sighing, moaning, and wailing. Should I really consider the prospects of a match during my days of mourning? Will I forget the love of my wife, of my youth, that perfect dove that God had granted his servant to create generations of fine descendants? She was the one who raised them to Torah in fear of heaven. She was always at my side to allow my Torah to develop, as I said, and praised her at the eulogy. She would protect me and watch after my broken and weak health. She hid the worries of money from me, so I would not be disrupted from my service of God, as I can see clearly and understand now. She walked a son and daughter to the chuppah together with me in joy and in happiness. It's a broken man. He says, and now that she has been returned to her father's household and her youth, euphemism for passing on to the next world, I am left bereaved, a broken vessel. Who shall I express my worries to and be assuaged? Who will look after me and care for me? Who alive knows the greatness of her righteousness and modesty more than I? Many times we would have discussions and debates about the fear of God into midnight. As you will understand with my words to come, my brokenness is vast like the sea. My wounds mortal, my world darkened, all joy and mirth have deserted me. God is righteous in all his ways. May her soul be bound to the bonds of eternal life, and may her merit stand for me and my descendants forever. My friend, how could you present such a thing to me before, but how can you present such a thing before me at this time when I am filled with sadness, sighing, and pain? I worked so hard to try and save her, and yet she was still taken upon high to my great pain. I have become so weak. I can barely even learn a minor sugya. And then he finishes off and he says, so it's a person in the throes of loss and suffering. He says, what does he want to do? He wants to leave the rabbinate at this early time. 
He says, I'm actually looking not to get remarried. I'm looking to leave the rabbinate. And what does he want to do with his pain? He says, The last lines come from the end of the letter. I desire now in the throes of my suffering and my loss to toss off the yoke of the rabbinate. Sounds attractive to me. Toss off the yoke of the rabbinate and to sit like one of the masses learning Torah. Think about the, the, the anxiety I have when I'm, giving, uh, when I'm rendering halachic decision. It's as, if the, it's as if the depth, Sheol, is opened up in front of me with every decision. It's very difficult for me with children now to support. So people support me, but it's out of embarrassment. It's, I don't want to have to deal with this anymore. Listen to what he says at the end. Really, if I had my druthers, I would guard the synagogue at night. Or I would be a sexton in the synagogue, cleaning up. I want to separate myself from, he sees himself as a rabbi in dealing with tzachet or as something that's involvement with the world. He sees, he wants to take his suffering and turn it inward and catalyze it that he could just learn all day. Not to run away from Torah, not to, not to toss this life behind. I don't even think that that would have been a, a cognitive option at the time, really. But, but to go ahead and to sit and to learn, that's what he wants to do in his suffering. That's he wants to take it, he wants to cut away everything else, all the extraneous detritus uh, of his life, and to turn it into something that's just purely sitting like a simple person and learning Torah. That's what he wants to do with his pain. His pain leads him to learning Torah. Now, of course, uh, that's not what happens to Rabbi Akiva Eger. Rabbi Akiva Eger does get remarried. Rabbi Akiva Eger takes whatever pain he suffers, and the, the pain over here is almost, I think, uh, the expression by a rabbi of the caliber of Rabbi Akiva Eger is, I think, always sui generis uh, in, in, its, uh, in its vividness and the rawness of it and the suffering and the loss that he has. But uh, about, uh, about a decade later, he goes ahead and he assumes his post in Posen, and be, or Poznan, he becomes the rabbi there, and most of his writing and creative Torah output happen after having experienced the loss. The last case, and I think the most explicit of the cases that we, uh, that we are dealing with here, there's other ones. Um, this uh, I've by no means exhausted, not that anybody would think so, to exhaust the topic. But the last case I want to uh, talk about, uh, uh, at least the most important rabbi to me uh, personally, which is Rav Avram Yitzchak HaKohen Kuk, uh, the first Ashkenazic chief rabbi of mandatory Palestine, ideologic, ideological father of religious Zionism, halachist, mystic, and poet of national redemption. Rav Kuk was somebody um, that suffered uh, a lot of loss. Rav Kuk actually, they just came out with a, uh, a beautiful new edition, uh, Koren or uh, Magid Books publishers, oh, and they... Right, same thing. They came out with something called Mitzvah's Katan. It's a collection of Cook's writings from, uh, from his time before he moved to Boisk. He was in the city of Zaymel, when he was a rabbi in Zaymel, his first rabbinic posting, uh, which was facilitated by his father-in-law, the Aderet. Uh, they actually have, in the beginning, it was known that Rav Cook lost a two-and-a-half-year-old daughter. Mm-hmm. And they found, uh, scholars found a, uh, a ledger from the Hevra Kadisha attesting, I read this, I was sitting Friday night in Shul, I had just gotten the book, and you know, this is what you do, you take these books, and, uh, and I'm reading this, and just burst out into tears, you know, like, how could you, you see... You know, this person, you spend so much time reading his writings. You spend so much time seeing somebody that is intoxicated with godliness and with love for the Jewish people. 
and you see that, uh, that he's a person suffered loss. And rather than finding somebody that's atum, that's, uh, that's almost closed off to suffering, Rav Kook was keenly aware. We, we don't find Rav Kook writing anything about, to my knowledge, right, about this daughter. But Rav Kook thereupon uh, loses his first wife. And uh, his Talmud and uh, chronicler, early chronicler and popularizer of Rav Kook's Torah, Rabbi Moshe Tzvi Neria, also one of the founders of the Akiva movement in Kfar Aroe, uh, which was named after his Rebbe, he says, Ha'asona sherpakadet beta, you know it again, for the interest of time, because I do want to say one last thing, um, we'll read in English. The disaster which struck his household, the death of his wife, the daughter of the Aderet, moved him to increase his diligence in learning the revealed and special deepening of his learning in the esoteric. And during the year of his mourning, he increased his learning in Zohar and the writings of the Arizal. And since there was no one around who would clarify these difficult topics in this special area of Torah, he requested permission from his kila and traveled for a month to the city of, Shul- of Shulai. Of, uh, it says in the Hebrew, uh, Shavil, but that takes me to a place in France on Wikipedia. So it's uh, to the line of the great mystics, Rabbi Shlomo, El Yashif. Rabbi El Yashif is called, the, uh, is called by some the last Mikubal, the last of the great uh, 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 Lithuanian uh, Kabbalists, continuing the tradition of the Vilna Gon, and there if Cook learns Nistar, Cook learns it in Torah then. I don't, again, you would have to speak to scholars about this, but I wonder, uh, because if you look at Mitziut Katan, if you look at Rukuk's writings there, they're very beautiful from his early, uh, I would say, uh, not, to, not yet the mature stage of Rukuk's writings that we find when he reaches Yafo and even King Kaseboy's and Rav Kook reaches Eretz Yisrael and his writing does take on a, a, a more, um, I would say, well, sources start to get dropped, but you look at Mitziut Katan, could almost be written by another rabbi. There's sources, there's t- discussions of different questions in the Rambam and in Gemaras. There's, uh, it's almost, it could be any, almost any other rabbi. We do find that Rav Kook's writings become even deeper in their mystical engagement after this experience. And I wonder, Rav Kook sees the Leshem as a Rebbe. The, the Leshem is uh, uh, of almost inestimable importance and significance in the transmission of Kabbalah and uh, the teachings of the Arizal. Uh, he's called the Leshem because the name of the Savior is Leshem Shabbat Ramah. And uh, I wonder if these two events are connected. Rav Kook's decision to go ahead and to toss himself into the esoteric, to toss himself into the mystic as a response to his great loss is maybe, it, it maybe accounts for a maturity or a change in the way Rav Kook expresses his Torah and expresses his ideas, uh, perhaps even allows him to move on to his next kilah more easily, and then from that kilah uh, to move on directly to Eretz Yisrael when he's called. Uh, how do we know how deep the pain Rav Kook was? Because Rav Kook was also a poet, and Rav Kook wrote about his loss. He has a, and this is also taken from the same introduction, amazing scholarly introduction to, uh, to Mitziut Katan. It also appears in Kfatsimi Kitav Yad Kacho, volume one. Uh, Kfatsimi Kitav Yad Kacho, uh, just a quick word, I know that we're about to run out of time. Uh, Rav Kook's writings, as they've uh, come down to us uh, often, come down to us in censored, I think is a strong word, but in a, in, they're packaged, packaged and edited by, by Rav Kook's chief Talmidim, uh, two of them, his son Rav Spihuda Cohen Cook, and also the Rav Anazir, Rabbi David Cohen. And they appear to us in what's called in the Hesdi Yeshivas, the Shas Lavan, or as a Kodesh, or as a Torah, or as a Tshuva, uh, and, uh, and Orot. And, uh, and then we find, we find now, recently there's been an explosion in publishing of Rav Kook's works, and we find the, uh, the works that they're culled from are called Shmona Kvatsim, eight notebooks, which are actually taken, I believe, from a very short period of time, Rav Kook's life. There's many more left to be published and printed. And then we have 
three more shorter volumes called Chvatsimi Ktav Yad Kadsho. There's a version that comes out in a censored version from Rechoner of Tzvi Yehuda that, uh, that is called Pinkas Yud Gimel and Pinkas Yud Boys, but the Chvatsimi Ktav Yad Kadsho comes from the same publishing house, and there we find the rawest expression of Rav Kook's Torah, un, uh, untouched, really, and, and, and disorganized, too. Uh, Rav Kook was writing this, I think, ideally, uh, personally. Rav Kook says in, in Hanavoch, the confused one, or the confounded one, Machashakim Svivai, Darkness surrounds me, yamesh, and I feel darkness materializes. Darkening clouds, thick, uh, a thick fog goes ahead and blacks and blacks out the sun. I lie in a grave, although I am still alive. In Kate's Lashever, there's no end to my brokenness. To my predicament, there's no end. From the, from the pit, of the shadow of death, I shall return to life. From the darkness of death to the light of the, of the sun is always seen as Shemesh Marpe, something that heals, which I love. From the darkness of my confoundment, my confusion, the chaotic sense around me, my soul was ensnared in its crooked ways. El haora ha'ach nitzalti eshkod b'Torah sher otpanel lo pilalti. In the last line, Cook says, and echoing the words of Torah, Yaakov sees Yosef rose panecha lo pilalti. I couldn't believe, I couldn't imagine that I would see her face. Cook says, I shall not see her face anymore. Ostensibly referring to the loss of his wife, and his answer is to run to the Torah as a miflat and to deepen his experience of learning Torah. What does all this mean for us? And this, I know, I'm a minute over. What does all this mean for us? I won't read it inside, but Rabbi Soloveitchik has a profound meditation on this. Rabbi Soloveitchik says there are two things if we can bifurcate. There's pain and there's suffering. Pain, an animal experiences pain, says Rav Soloveitchik. Pain is, is a physical experience. Pain is almost the lower debased level of experience. When I experience pain, I can't think about anything else. Suffering is a human experience. Suffering is to take terrible things that happen. Or to look around, even if, thank God, we're not experiencing it on a personal level. To look around at the world and experience the suffering in the world and to say, how do I give this meaning. Salvatrix says suffering is an opportunity, is a vo- from the void that the suffering and the loss causes, is an opportunity to provide meaning. Whether or not that meaning is some pat theodicy that a person wants to offer. Whether that meaning is, well, you know, if you, if you would have if you would have been different, it would have been even worse. Whatever answers that we have, or whatever sort of hackneyed tropes that we have to answer these questions, there's another path. There's another path that's the path apparently of tzaddikim. That in saying tzaddik viralu, for a righteous person and it's bad for them, they turn that, they say, tzaddik v'tov la'acherim. The tzaddik takes that and uses that to bestow goodness on other people. And we find that it's an individual. It doesn't necessarily mean a deepening of Torah. We see here spiritual creativity or deepening of engagement with Torah, but other people turn their loss into helping other people. Other people turn their suffering into a positive thing, a net gain for humanity. And that's how they frame their suffering. And that's how they go ahead and they turn it into something quite beautiful. And that's how they go ahead and they give meaning to their suffering. Soloveitchik says that elevates our suffering beyond mere pain and turns into a deeply human experience. It turns into a holy experience. I encourage you to read Rabbi Soloveitchik's words as well, but I'll end off with the line, the absence of suffering mitigates the sharpness of pain. If you do not give meaning to it, if you don't take this creative gesture, this positive gesture in the wake of one's loss and suffering, then the pain becomes even greater. Then the, the experience of raw pain becomes something that overwhelms, and the more that that's engaged, the deeper the, uh, the deeper the pit one falls into and the inability to create meaning out of that suffering. So this is indeed another way that sort of skirts around the issue of theodicy, 
whether or not we're mitigating the innocence of the sufferer or mitigating the benevolence of God, and instead turns it into a positive experience for the tzaddik and a framing experience. I thank you all so much for your time. Thank you. And uh, I wish everybody a 